can find it either way. Well, we're beginning a, a new series uh, today on the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Tim, I don't know when it was, Tim, maybe two, three months ago. I don't remember exactly. It doesn't matter. But we were talking about what to do next. And I remember Tim saying, man, I just feel like we need to get back to the Gospels. And like, you can't ever go wrong with that one, really. And so um, we, uh, we came up with this series, Following the Servant King, which will run us uh, pretty much through this uh, school year. Uh, so really, really excited about this series. You know what it's like sometimes when you get phone calls from family members? Um, sometimes it can be bad news and sometimes it can be good news. You, you know what I'm saying? I, like with my kids, I, all they have to say is, I can answer the phone, they, they can go, Dad, I know it's bad news. I mean, you know, I just, and, and normally my mind would say, is there something wrong with the car? Well, sort of. You just, man, you just kind of pick that up. But there's other times when you get some really good news, unexpected news. So Sherry called me, I don't know, how long ago was that, honey? Two weeks? I don't know, two or three weeks ago. She said, you'll never guess who I met. Sherry does volunteer work at a place called Blessings of Hope. It's kind of a nonprofit food distribution center in Lancaster County. And um, in the heyday of the pandemic, they were sending some, some, I think some days they were sending out seven semi-trucks of food just to distribute to people. It's, it's all part of a process from, called from farm to family. And so, so you don't just lose a lot of the produce. And so she was actively involved going and volunteering and, and helping there. And they would do, you know, depending upon the week, one day they'd have like a thousand, you know, thousands of cucumbers. And the next week, you know, ricotta cheese. I mean, just, you know, she's, she's just, it's very, there's a lot of variety. Anyway, she said, you'll never guess who I met. And I always hate those questions because, I mean, I don't know. So I said, what happened? She said, well, we were there working and somebody came along and they said, um, now make sure everybody has your masks on, which tells you what they normally do, but nonetheless, make sure you have your masks on and we're going to ask you to work a little bit longer here. And, and, and so somebody special is coming. Okay, 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 okay. So they're working and doing their thing. And sure enough, uh, police show up. Well, that's always you know, a little bit nerve-wracking. And Sherry works with some Mennonite folk, and that made them go, and she, Sherry said, we'll be okay, don't worry. And then Secret Service people started showing up. And, you know, everybody's on edge. And sure enough, um, Ivanka Trump is over this whole farm-to-family thing nationwide. And, and this particular group, we didn't know it was all connected. We didn't know any of this stuff. And sure enough, she comes walking in, walks right up to Sherry's table. I got a picture of it, if you ever want to see it. I was going to put it up on the slide, and Sherry said, you better not. I said, okay, well, I went away. And she's looking right at the table. She looks right at my wife. She says, so how's it gone? Sherry said, everybody froze, and she just spoke right up. That was totally unexpected, but there was a short preparation period for that, wasn't there? Where someone was saying, get ready, work hard, put your mask on. Stay a little bit of overtime, whatever we need you to do, you know? All, all, that, all that came in. And it just, it made me think of this passage. Get ready. He's coming. 
he's coming, the glorious Lord of Lords, right? We, um, we live in a culture that's filled with all kinds of troubling news. And so a term has been coined that you hear all the time now, fake news. Bad news. The other night we turned on the, radio, we turned on the TV at 11 o'clock. We normally try to go to bed by then, but we flipped it on. We wanted to see some local news. Actually, we wanted to see the news about her coming and visiting. We thought, we'll see. And, and when she, it finally came on about it, but, but like this guy was murdered and this thing has gone terrible. And, and, you know, about six, seven minutes into the thing, we're going like, everything they're saying is bad news. Like, is there, is there anything positive in this world? And then at least they threw in this, you know, the, 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 this one thing. Do you feel like that sometimes? Pandemics and wildfires and hurricanes... What's going to happen now with the whole Supreme Court? You know, and tension there and riots and... We need good news. We desperately need good news. In the first century, they were looking for good news. Um, I'm a bit of an historian of this time frame. It's an area that's always intrigued me. Um, so I did some graduate work in this area. And if you, if you track with the time period when the Romans came in in 63 BC, pretty much took over Judea and, and Palestine and, and that entire area, you, you have this ongoing kind of groaning sense amongst the people who feel... We, we need deliverance. Now, unfortunately, where they tended to emphasize, what they tended to emphasize was political deliverance. I'm going to read something to you. It's from one of the, what we call, intertestamental Jewish texts that is written shortly before the time of Christ. I'm just going to read one excerpt from it. It's entitled The Psalm of Solomon. It's not really written by Solomon. It's pseudepigraphal, but it doesn't matter. But in chapter 17, let me just read a couple of verses. Because what what, here's what it shows me. It shows me what people were thinking and feeling in a time of bad news who were looking for good news. They didn't like their situation. They didn't like what the Romans were doing. They didn't like injustice. They didn't like oppression. They didn't like, they didn't like all kinds of things. It's not the way life is to be. So the the writer of this particular um, piece says this. Behold, O Lord, raise up unto them their king, the son of David, at the time known to you, O God, in order that he may reign over Israel, your servant. Gird him with strength that he may shatter unrighteous rulers. And that he may purge Jerusalem from Gentiles who trample her down to destruction. Wisely, righteously, he shall thrust out sinners from their, their inheritance. He shall destroy the arrogance of the sinner as a potter's jar. With a rod of iron, he shall shatter all their substance. He shall destroy the godless nations with the word of his mouth. And it goes on and on and on. 
And it, it's, it's a heart cry of a people that are saying, we need this king, Messiah, to come and to get rid of those lousy Romans, to get them off our back so that we can be our own nation doing our own thing. That's the good news we're looking for. What they didn't realize is they were misfocused on the good news they really needed. But you can understand that, can't you? I mean, how would you feel in that situation? Wouldn't you be crying out for something similar? Mark. We don't know exactly when Mark pens his gospel. I think good estimate is anywhere between probably sometime in the 50s or the first century. It's debated. It's good men that fudge it a little bit different ways, but I, I would argue for the 50s. Mark writes this gospel, and what he wants is he wants us to know the good news. He wa- and he doesn't want to just give us, oh, let me give you another story that's kind of good news among other stories that are good news. Oh, no, 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 no. He wants to give you the ultimate good news that, that usurps all other good news. Do you see? And so in these first eight verses, I want to look at the wonder of the gospel that we see in verses 1 to 3. And then the messenger of that gospel, John the Baptist, in verses 4 to 8. So pretty simple. Look at the wonder. And then look at the, the guy whose job was to say, it's coming. Okay? And then make some applications to our own life. I'm going to give you a, a history lesson. Try to stay with me, okay? I, I know it's, hey, it could be 9 o'clock in the morning, so we're back to 10.30, so you should be able to track a little bit better, okay? Okay. But I, I, want, I want to give you kind of a feel of something that I think is really, really important. Jesus is born around 5 or 6 B.C., okay? And as you know, he dies around 30 A.D., right? So we got, kind of got that framework. Prior to Jesus, in 27 BC, you have Rome becoming an empire under Augustus. Octavian, they called him Augustus. So Augustus rules for a period of time to about 14, and then Tiberius rules for a period of time. Jesus would have had his public ministry during the time of Tiberius. And then there's a really crummy guy that we all have heard of before called Caligula. And then a guy called Claudius, and then our favorite, Nero. That was all part of a a particular dynasty. There's an inscription that was written. Oh, here's something else. Think about this. Mark is writing his gospel within the context of Rome itself. Just, so just these moving parts. I don't know. Is he writing specifically under Caligula or Claudius or Nero? I don't know. There's problems there with everyone. But, but here's, I'm going to read an inscription to you. If you were living in, in, in the ancient world, you would have seen this stuff all over the place. Listen to what it says. I'm going to read it slow. The birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of, of the good news for the world. 
Do you hear that? You're living at this time, you lived by inscriptions and by statues and the kinds of things that you could see. That's how that they would pass on their propaganda to the world. And you would see things like this. The hope of the world, the good news of the world, the beginning of the good news for the world is Octavian, Augustus. And there's his dynasty. What happens is, as you track with his dynasty, he dies of a natural death. Tiberius does. Caligula is stabbed to death. He's assassinated. Claudius is poisoned. And Nero commits suicide before somebody else can kill him. Does that sound like the kind of world you want to live in? And you're living in a world that's saying the answer is political. It's Augustus. It's, it's, his, it's a whole reign that goes from him to Nero. And Mark, who is writing in a Roman context, look at how he starts his book. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah the Son of God. How do you think that's heard <laughs> in a Roman context? We think it's this. And Mark says, no. It's much bigger. You will not ultimately find hope and deliverance in political figures. Now, folks, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be good citizens. That doesn't mean we shouldn't vote. Everyone in here should vote. Everyone out there, everyone should vote. That, that, that's part of your responsibility because God sets up kingdoms. So I get that, okay? So I'm not minimizing that at all. You should be a good citizen and do that. It's your job. It's your responsibility. However, it's not the most important thing. And, and, John, and Mark, in a kind of subversive way, says, you think the beginning of the good news for the world is Augustus. And I'm telling you, it's Jesus. He's greater than all those things. Look at how he describes him. Jesus. Joshua. It means God will save us. It's the name given to Jesus as the human that is born. The God-man who was born. Jesus. He doesn't get that name until he's born. He's Christ. He's Messiah. He's the royal king. He's the son of God. Which sometimes is focusing on messianic overtones. But I think here it also has all kinds of overtones of deity. So you can talk about your little Augustus who you thought was some kind of little God. I'm talking to you about the true God who became the God-man. To save people from their sins who alone is ruler over everything. Folks, that's the kind of good news we need. It's, it's, a, it's a wonder. And it's not only a wonder because he stands above everything. It's also a wonder because all of history moves to him.
You know what they would often do in the ancient world? If you were a new emperor coming from a different line, um, you had to often fabricate a backstory. You know, maybe show your connection back to some of the people that started Rome itself, or maybe going back to Troy. Or they, they did all kinds of things. Like, you know, somehow my descendants kind of go back there somehow, whatever. And they fabricate, and they create, and they do all kinds of things. In verse 2 and 3, this is not fabrication. This is reality. The whole sweep of history moves us to this one great event of Jesus Christ as the God-man who has come to save us and to rule. So look at what he does. He quotes, he actually quotes from two passages. He gives us Isaiah as the overarching one, but, but it actually comes out of, Mal- out of Malachi and also out of Isaiah. And it says this, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, so, so how can you even talk about this gospel? How can you even talk about the beginning of it and somebody pointing to it? How do you talk about that? You don't have to fabricate a story. You only have to go back and find out prophecy was already talking about this event. So he goes back to these two passages and we read this. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Just one quick aside. If you go back and read Malachi and Isaiah, you will find that the object that's being, the individual that's being talked about being prepared for is Yahweh God. But in this passage, it's being applied to Jesus. Because he's God. I mean, that's the point, do you see? So he says, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight straight paths for him. So in in, in history past, prophets living in a time of of pain and sorrow and, and exile and return from exile and all the problems are saying, God is going to do something in the future. He's going to bring somebody along who will prepare the way for the God-man to come, who will be the turning point of all history. So this gospel is above every other good news imaginable, folks. And it's also the fulfillment of the sweep of history itself. I mean, we're only three verses into this book, and, and, and Mark is overwhelming us, isn't he? He's saying, this is the wonder of the good news. Do you think that gave hope to Christians living in a Roman setting who were wondering how they were going to stand for their faith in a world of opposition? Do you think these words would help them? Oh, immeasurably. Do you think it helps Christians sitting in pews and seats in New Jersey and all across America and all across this world? Do you think it helps our brothers and sisters sitting in seats and, or sitting in house churches worried about what's going on in China and all around the world? Does this, you know what I love? True good news is never 
exclusive. It's good for all. Doesn't matter where you live. Doesn't matter what you're going through. This good news is good news for all Christians then and now. And Mark wants you to know coming right out of the get-go, this is wonderful. It's above all. Caesar has nothing to compare to Christ. And this is the fulfillment of history itself. It is a wonder. So Mount Mark is going to pen this book. And, and, and he writes this book. There's, there's some debate exactly how to break it down. But, but, but I would argue that there's two basic movements in Mark's gospel. And in the first movement, he wants us to embrace the fact that Jesus is the messianic son. By what he says and by what he does with people. And, and just, you just, you're going to stand back and you're going to watch. and You're going to go like, Wow! Like, that's what it's all about. Oh, it's not even about political revolution. No, it's not about that either. Oh, it's about that. Okay, okay. That's, I, 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 I got it. And then in the second half of the book, he wants us also embrace something else about Jesus, that he's the suffering servant. Doesn't that sound like an oxymoron? He's the the great king, and he's going to suffer like the Dickens. Like, how do you put those together? You have to put those together, for it's all part of the gospel. And so Mark is going to write his book, and he's going to put those two things together, and by the time you get to the end, you're going to say, man, this is it. It's a better and above everything. Well, how would you like to be the guy that introduces that? Man, now that's, you know, you know I, I've often thought, boy, can you imagine like being a press secretary? That'd be a tough position. But that's nothing compared to something like this. So after talking about the wonder of the gospel, which is right, Jesus is coming. He talks about the guy that's going to point to Jesus. We know him. It's John the Baptist. You know what's really interesting? John the Baptist's ministry is like a flash in the pan. Best I can tell, his ministry lasted no more than a year and a half. Short. And even in reading Mark's gospel, by verse 14 of chapter 1, he's in prison and that's, there's one little other section where you hear about that prison experience as an aside later in Mark's gospel, Mark 6. But this is pretty much it. John comes on the scene, does his part, boom, and he's gone. But his part was very important. So we're introduced to John, not so that we would, so that we would appreciate John, but never elevate John. It's easy to do that with people, isn't it? It's easy to take individuals you love and respect and elevate them to a place that they'll never be. We want to honor, and we honor John when we read this, but we can never elevate John. That position is for Jesus alone. So look at how he describes John here in verse 4 and following. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
The whole of, Jude, of the Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sin, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So he starts by kind of giving you this summary of John the Baptist's ministry. It's interesting it's in the wilderness, isn't it? And scholars have wrestled with what, what, what that's all about. But it, it's, it's very likely that when you think of the wilderness, you think of a lot of different things. But remember, it was in the wilderness that Moses led the people ultimately to the promised land. And, and I, I, I think the fact that, that, that John appears in the wilderness, well, Isaiah said he would, okay, is showing us what we need is we need another someone to take us where we need to go, someone other than Moses. We, 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 the, the wilderness is the place where we're hopeless, but we can go somewhere. And the wilderness is also removed from all the religiosity that occurred in Jerusalem itself. So it was both separate from and a place to prepare for all at the same time. And John the Baptist baptized, immersed the people. And as he did that, he said the baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now let me be real clear on this. Baptism is not efficacious. In other words, there's not something that happens. If I, if I take you and put you down in water, it's not like, da-da, woo-hoo, hey, whoa that was magical. It's not the point. Rather, it becomes an occasion or a platform to express what is already in the heart, which, which is a heart that, that, that is marked by confession of sins uh, and, and repentance. And so this is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What is it that results in forgiveness of sins? It is the repentance. It is not the baptism. Baptism is merely the occasion. But here's what I want you to see. Just like in their day, in our day, politics were everything. And John comes and says, what you need is not to start organizing into military bands and getting as many, um, uh, you know, swords together as you can because we're going to nail these Romans. Let's be all ready when this king comes and we're going to rah, 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 let's go. That's not what he says at all. He says, if you're going to be ready for this king, it's all about what God does in your heart. It's the spiritual So what you're doing now is showing that in your heart, you're saying, God, I can't and I need you. Father, my deepest need is not to change my circumstances, make the politics better. My deepest need is the forgiveness of my sins. See, John John gets that from the get-go. And so even in what he's doing and preparing, it's going to continue because Jesus is going to say, repent for the forgiveness of sins, isn't he? When he comes on the scene. So when you just kind of summarize John's ministry, he comes in the wilderness and he says, get ready because your answer is not bound up in politics or any other thing you can think of, social change or any of that stuff. It's bound up in the spiritual.
where God changes you and forgives you from the inside out. Then you get kind of a, a closer look at John in verses 6 to 8. Notice what it says. Because it describes him. So what's this guy look like? I mean, not real impressive, um, but, but, but real important. Can you imagine the anticipation these folks had after doing this? Do you remember that old, I don't know, this, this may date me. I don't think it's on commercials anymore. Remember that old Heinz ketchup commercial? The jingle goes something like, anticipation is making me wait. You can see why they don't have me on the worship team. Okay, okay. But does that sound like familiar to anybody out there? You know what I mean? I mean, I mean it may be true of Heinz ketchup, whatever. But it's really true of this period. I mean, anticipation off the charts. So this guy comes in nice flowing robes with, with all kinds of servants around him. Not exactly. Look at, how he, look at how he, what he looks like. Verse 6. John wore clothing made of camel's hair. Okay, well, I don't think I've ever done that myself, but, but that's, that's what he has on. With a leather belt around his waist... Okay, all right, so he's probably not the most impressive. Although, when you hear that description, there is somebody in the Old Testament you would immediately think of. Do you know who it is? It's Elijah. Elijah dressed like that. You go back, if you go back to Kings, you'll read about that. And so, and, and we know later in, John, in, in, in the Gospels, he is compared to Elijah as an Elijah-like figure. So, so, you know, for us, we're thinking like, I don't know, like just kind of wearing camel's hair and then there's this little belt, you know, probably had long hair and beard and everything else. So, you know, I don't know. You kind of think like, is, is that the guy? That's the guy. That's the guy because the Elijah figure, which was promised in Malachi, is here. And when you see him, again, you know God is fulfilling his word. But we look at it sometimes and go like, hmm, not exactly. But what did he eat? He ate locusts and wild honey. I like honey, actually. But I like it on toast with peanut butter or almond butter or, or, or in my tea. I mean, I, I, mean, I love honey. But, but I love a lot more than honey. Well, this guy does get his meat, of sorts, but he gets it from locusts. I won't ask you, but I can't imagine. Has anybody in here ever eaten locusts? I mean, like, I mean if you have, don't raise your hand, okay, because we don't want to talk to you. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just wondering. Actually, in the book of Leviticus, the, the Jews were, were allowed to eat locusts. And there's a later Qumran writing, a Dead Sea Scroll writing um, from Qumran, that, that actually tells you how you can actually... Uh, prepare locusts, if you ever want to find out. So if you, if you ever want to do that in your diet, you know, just let me know. I'll show you the art and show you the passage. So, I mean, pe- people are thinking this way, but the Qumran community was also a desert community. They were, they were far away from, they were away from Jerusalem itself. So it, it all kind of makes sense. And this guy is eating very simply in the desert. He's in the desert, looks like a wild man, reminds you of Elijah, He's getting his protein. 
Get some sugar, natural sugar in the honey. But that's kind of it. You know, about that time you could say like, wow, we ought to elevate that guy. I mean, we ought to come up with billboards that say, be John the Baptist. You know? Follow him. But look at what he says. Couldn't he make the argument, man, do I, do I ever have a rough life? Like a year and a half, I'm going to prison, and they're going to chop off my head. That's it. This is rough. You guys should be looking at me. But that's not what he does. Look what the text says in verse 7. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than me, than I, sorry. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Does he take any attention for himself? You could say, man, he should. Locusts and honey, yuck. He must have smelled like the Dickens if that's all he wore all the time. And John the Baptist says, you know what? I am so privileged to do what I do. Because this other one that is coming soon, anticipation, I don't even have the right to be a mundane slave in relationship to him. I mean, a slave would be the one that would take that sandal and unstrap it and slip it off of the foot. And he's saying, I don't even deserve to be that close to him. He is so glorious. He is so wonderful. What I am doing, it's nothing in comparison to him. Yeah, yeah, I do the baptism thing. It becomes a a, a picture. You know what he's going to do? All those promises from the Old Testament about one day God giving you a new covenant from the inside out and giving you of his spirit, he's going to do that. You're not getting the picture. You're getting the reality. And he will put his spirit within you and soften your hearts so for those that repent and trust in his son, Those individuals, for the first time in their lives, they will have an ability because God is within them to live differently. And I don't even have a right to be a slave in comparison to him. And John the Baptist, when verse 14 opens up, it says, after John the Baptist was put in prison, and it's almost like Mark is saying, It's like a chess piece. He's played his part. It's time to put it back in the box. Because at the end of the day, it's never about the pointer and the sign, is it? It's always about what that points to. And Mark (laughs) has just started his gospel. I mean, we're eight verses into this thing. And he's saying, it's a wonder, isn't it? It's above every other thing you would call good news. And it's good news for everybody in any situation at all times. And John says, 
I get to announce it. I get to kind of point people to it. And that's amazing. Two things, and then I'll, I'll let you go, because I, I think I've talked longer than I should have. I normally do. When, when you think about all that, I, I hope that in your hearts, you will respond afresh to the wonder of the gospel. You say, Doug, I'm a Christian. I got saved 27 years ago. Well, that's great. I'm not like, praise the Lord. But don't get over the wonder of the gospel. It's above every other good news imaginable. Doesn't, at the end of the day, it, it does matter what happens politically. I get that. And, and it matters to me, too. I feel that very deeply, okay? I'll just be honest with you. I, I'm, I'm a bit of a political junkie sometimes on this stuff. Okay, it is true. True. Okay. Admission. However, there's something much bigger and deeper than all that. And whatever sways this way, that will never change the good news here. Ever. And so we can go forth with confidence and we can say, God, thank you so much that I've got the good news that nobody will ever vote out. They'll never replace for he's the king of kings and lord of lords. And although I may not always agree with the way he allows things to go in this world, he's coming back one day and it will be exactly the way it, will, it should be one day. And in this interim, I can trust the one who I know personally. If you don't know Christ as your savior, I'll tell you what, in the world in which we live, you have every right to be scared to death. You ought to be unnerved. You ought to be discouraged. You ought to be disheartened. Because nothing is certain except Christ. And I would beckon you to come to him and receive the good news which alone you will never lose and will never fade. And as a Christian... Like John the Baptist. Now he pointed to Christ. We point back to Christ, don't we? Do we get a do do people get on our case and oh yes, yes, it's all true, it's all true, it's all true. And I don't want to minimize any of that, okay? But look, folks, it is the greatest of all privileges in the world to point people to Jesus Christ. Yeah, but they, they yell at me and they say mean things. I know, and I don't like it either. I'm not a masochist. I would like everybody to love me and be really nice to me all the time. I get it. But I get to point to him. I get to point to one who I don't even deserve to serve. Because the news I have is the best news in the world. Will you let that good news... Change the way you think. Change the way you feel. Because, brothers and sisters, that good news we can never lose. Father, 
it's, it's really, it's hard to preach on this, Lord, because I don't think I can ever do justice to the wonder of it. So I would pray that through your spirit, in a way that only you can, that you would enliven our hearts, that you would refocus us, that you would encourage us, that you would overwhelm us with the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Lord, wherever we find ourselves, may we understand that pointing people to Christ is the greatest of all privileges. In his name I pray, amen. You're dismissed.